Please turn with me in the Old Testament to Psalm 130. Psalm 130, a song of ascents. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord, more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Amen. Let's turn now to Romans. Chapter 3, and our text today will be verses 1 through 20. I'm going to back up two verses to chapter 2, verse 28. Get into Paul's train of thought. He says, No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. Circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying? Their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, 
so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Amen. You may be seated. Here's a word picture that some of you have heard me use before. That's okay. It's a good one, I think. I got this from a man named Jeff Baldwin, who wrote a book called The Deadliest Monster. And he likes to ask the question, what kind of monster are you? Are you more like the monster from the story of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde by Robert Louis Stevenson? Or are you more like the monster from Mary Shelley's novel, Frankenstein? Now, you may not be familiar with those two stories, so I'll just sketch them for you a little bit here. In in the story of Frankenstein, uh, the original novel, Frankenstein, um, Dr. Frankenstein is actually the scientist, not the monster. He's the scientist. He's the scientist who builds a creature out of lifeless pieces and then... Uh, electricity is run through it, and it comes to life. Okay, so this creature doesn't start out as a monster. It starts out very good, very gracious, very kind, very helpful. But gradually, through the novel, this creature gets rejected repeatedly by the human beings that it interacts with. And so gradually, it grows to become resentful and angry at all of the ill-treatment until by the end of the story, it is indeed a dangerous and criminal monster. Okay, and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, on the other hand, different story, Robert Louis Stevenson. Um, Dr. Jekyll is uh, another scientist, and he develops a concoction that will allow him to isolate the evil part of himself, which is called Mr. Hyde. And he thinks, well, if I can isolate the evil part, then maybe I can control it. Maybe I can get only the good to remain. But the problem is that he can only get the evil part isolated. He can't isolate the good part. He's able to become this purely evil Mr. Hyde, who goes out after dark and does all kinds of horrible things, but he, he can't manage to become purely good. And in fact, over time, it becomes harder and harder for him to change back into Dr. Jekyll after he's been Mr. Hyde. And Mr. Hyde prevails. Spoiler, I'm sorry, but um, it's a sad ending. Now you can see the difference in the outlook of those two stories on where evil comes from. And again, as this is a really helpful analysis from this Jeff Baldwin fellow. So, In Frankenstein, you have this picture of a basically good person. A basically good person who's corrupted by these outside influences. Whereas in Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, you have this recognition that evil is something that comes naturally to people. That it is in us from the start. So what we want to ask is, what is the more accurate picture of human nature according to the word of God? Or as that author Baldwin would ask, what kind of monster are you? 
And I think that the Apostle Paul's answer to that question is going to be pretty clear in today's passage. And we're going to get there, especially in the third point. But let me give you the other two first. Number one will be, God is not to blame, verses 1 through 4. Number two, God's glory is no excuse, verses 5 through 8. And then number three, God's law convicts all people, verses 9 to 20. So God is not to blame, God's glory is no excuse, and God's law convicts all people. So thinking back to chapter 2, up to this point, Paul's been very concerned to emphasize that Jews and Gentiles both are accountable for keeping the law of God, and both are guilty before God when they break his law. And so on the one hand, simply being a Gentile doesn't make a person any less accountable to the law of God, because even people who don't have the written Torah, the written law of Moses, even they share a common natural understanding of many aspects of what God's law requires. Well, then on the other hand, simply being an Israelite and having direct access to that fuller revelation of God's law in Scripture, well, that's no guarantee that a person's going to keep the law. Just because you're within that covenant circle doesn't mean you're righteous in the sight of God. In fact, Paul said at the end of chapter 2 that a, a Gentile who actually keeps the law would be much better off than a Jew who breaks it all the time. And that's where we ended up last week. Now this opens Paul up to a potential objection. By asking these questions and answers repeatedly throughout chapter 3, Paul is raising possible objections to his teaching and then answering them uh, preemptively. Uh, saying, here's what you might be wondering, and I'm glad you asked, because here's the answer. So here's the first potential objection. Paul, okay, you've just been telling us that a a true Jew is one inwardly, and that circumcision is a matter of the heart, that it's the Holy Spirit who makes a person truly part of the people of God, and it's not merely having access to the written law of Moses. Well, then wait a second. What was the whole point, then, of the nation of Israel? Why... Abraham, why Moses, why David, why any of it? Or, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Why did God set all these things up in the first place for the people of Israel? This question kind of reminds me of when Jesus is um, confronting the Pharisees' uh, lax standards on divorce. And he's saying, no, you, you really are supposed to stay married to one woman for life. And the disciples come out with, well, well, then Jesus, maybe it's better not to marry at all. And you think, well, it's a little bit of an overreaction. Jesus is very patient with them in that case um, to answer that, that uh, exclamation, uh, much as Paul patiently answers this objection, the taking his argument in the wrong direction. Um, So, what advantage do Jews have? Well, much in every way. There's a great advantage to being um, part of the people of Israel. To begin with, he says, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Just because you can break God's law just as well with or without a written copy, 
Well, that doesn't mean that, that having access to the written word is, is kind of trivial or, or unimportant. No, it's very important. It's a tremendous advantage. It's a tremendous blessing to have God's written word, have God's written law in particular. Uh, later in Romans chapter 9, Paul is going to kind of pick up on a, this train of thought, um, which he, he kind of drops here uh, midstream to deal with some other things. Um, and, but in chapter 9, he, he kind of carries this further. He says, well, what are some of the other advantages of being part of, uh, of the nation of Israel, of being a Jew? Well, he says in chapter 9, to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. In other words, it's, it's fantastic to be born and raised in the covenant community of Israel. You have all this exposure to the word of God, the promises of God, the, the, the pictures of redemption and grace that were built into the fabric of Israel's life and community. It's a fabulous thing. Much in every way. I want to just pause here because I don't want to miss uh, the application of this to members of the church. Including, and perhaps especially, for the children of the church, covenant children, is a great privilege, an amazing blessing to be part of the family of God in the church. Have people teaching you all the time about Jesus, about his death on the cross for your sins. Not everybody gets that opportunity growing up. Not everybody has that opportunity as an adult. Never to lose sight of how special that is. What an extraordinary gift it is to be so close every day to God's Word, to God's people. That is a sweet blessing from God for each of us, including for you children of the church. On the other hand, Paul's teaching you here something equally important, which is that you can never count on any of those things I've just mentioned to save you. Just being part of the church, just being taught those things, just having access to God's word and going to church and having people teach you about Jesus, that's not what makes you a Christian. Part of Paul's message here is that each of us, each of us personally, has to come to Jesus for ourselves and believe his promises for ourselves and trust him to save me. Not just my family, not just my church. Each of us personally has to turn away from our own sin, commit ourselves to following him. Just being close to those things isn't what saves us. It's Christ himself and believing in him, trusting him. Okay? So just to reiterate here, what advantage has the Jew? And by extension, what advantage do do church members have today, including children? Well, much in every way. That's where we are with verse 1, uh, 1 and 2. Well, now a different question comes up. Well, if it's such an advantage to be an Israelite, to be part of the covenant, well, how do you account for the fact that so many Israelites throughout history were not faithful to the covenant? That so many Israelites didn't even believe in the Messiah when he came? Somebody might have a sneaking suspicion at this point. 
that maybe this is God's fault. That maybe there was some problem in God's plan. Because if God had meant to save Israel, but then some Israelites were unfaithful to the covenant, then maybe, does that mean that God failed? Does that mean that God wasn't faithful to his promises, that they didn't come true? Paul puts it in verse 3 like this. says, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Well, no. <laughs> That's Paul's basic answer as he goes on. Um, the point kind of uh, implied here is God, God never promised that every Israelite would be saved. He never said that. That's not the way the covenant is set up. Uh, as we've mentioned many times before, the covenant God made with Israel, you remember, contained both blessings and curses. It had both. And every Israelite, individually, and the people as a whole, they were all faced with that fork in the road, bless, the way of blessing and the way of curse under the covenant. Are we going to be loyal to the Lord, or are we going to be disloyal to the Lord? Uh, and many Israelites... We're not loyal to the Lord throughout history. And they, therefore, fell under the curses of the covenant instead of the blessings of the covenant. God is not to blame for that. By no means, Paul says, is God to blame. Rather, let God be true, though everyone were a liar. In other words, God has been faithful. That's the one thing we know for sure. Um, faithful and true, that's who God is. It's his character. It cannot be otherwise. That's just what God is like. And if that puts everybody else without exception in the wrong, well, then so be it. Because God is the unchanging standard against which everything else has to be measured. Right? He is faithful when he gives covenant blessing, and he is faithful when he executes covenant judgment. And Paul quotes here from Psalm 51, well-known psalm of David's confession of sin, where as part of his confession, David basically says, look, Lord, I, I recognize I'm in no position to make excuses for myself, to try to somehow put my guilt back on the Lord, as though maybe if he had done something differently, then I wouldn't have sinned so badly. So it's really God, no, David recognizes the blame is all on my side. None of it's on his, that you may be justified in your words. And prevail when you are judged, Lord. This is something that's very difficult, very difficult for very many people to accept. But it is a, a crystal clear teaching of the Bible. And it's essential to understanding the book of Romans in particular. And it is this idea that God is glorified not only through his work of salvation, but also through his work of judgment. God is glorified by saving sinners. God is also glorified, and this is the hard part, by condemning sinners on the basis of their guilt before his holy law. I think that's a hard truth. Let's think about the alternative. You imagine a God who's kind of hoping, hoping that people will be saved, but he, he's frustrated. He's let down when, when they don't accept that salvation. A God whose glory is somehow diminished when he has to judge sinners. That's not the God of the Bible. 
That's not a God to believe in. No, Scripture teaches repeatedly in the message of this passage in particular that God is righteous both in salvation and judgment, and therefore he is glorified by both salvation and judgment. Now, Paul knows that that is a hard pill to swallow for many people. For many people, it just intuitively doesn't sound like that can possibly be true. That's largely, I'd say, because they don't have a, a thoroughly Bible-based understanding of the character and holiness of God. So the bigger view of God that we get, the more biblical view of God and His character and His majesty and His glory and holiness, the more this notion of God being glorified in His judgment of sin makes more intuitive sense. But Paul, Paul knows that this is challenging for people, and so he goes on to bring up a further possible objection for people who are struggling with this. Just to say, okay, okay, Paul. Okay, so you're saying that God is glorified when he judges sinners. It almost sounds, then, like you're saying that sin is a good thing. Is that what you're saying, Paul? And um, So... God is glorified when sinners are judged, right? You said that. Well, think about it. If, if they hadn't sinned in the first place, then he wouldn't get that glory from judging them. And in fact, if he gets all this glory, well, then, well, then maybe he should be thanking those sinners in, in, instead of punishing them. That's what Paul's kind of getting at in verse 5. And of course, you, you know here that like Paul, I feel like I need to give this qualification. I'm speaking in a human way. And he says that because... He can feel here he's tiptoeing close to irreverence even to propose this way of thinking to argue against it. But then, then he, he carries this logic. It's, it's bad logic, but, but still, he carries it one step further to say, well, maybe if that's the case, that God, if God's so glorified by judging sin, then maybe we should sin even more, Paul, so that God can get even more glory. And you can see how absurd this is. And um, Paul, in fact, doesn't so much argue against this line of thinking as he just kind of lays it out there and says, look how ridiculous this is. Um, it is. It is a fact, though, that Paul had faced this kind of attack on his gospel teaching. Paul, people would say, you're, you're teaching that people are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, not through the works of the law. Well, Paul, isn't that going to make people feel like they can sin all they want? They can sin all they want, and that'll just bring God greater glory one way or the other, either by saving them or judging them. So let's just sin so that grace can abound, as he says in another place. And Paul, um, again, he kind of is showing the absurdity of this way of thinking. He kind of dismisses it um, when he says their condemnation is just. You can see how patently wrong this way of thinking is. These people are making a mockery of what it means for God to be glorified. I can try to spell that out for a little, a little bit for us in a way that, that Paul kind of leaves implied. Think about this. Glory, glory is not a commodity that God needs and that he wants to get from sinners by either saving or judging. That's not what God's glory is like. No, God depends on nobody to be who he is or to do what he does. And nothing that we can do can ever add or detract even a little bit from the glory of God, which is without limit. 
Glorifying God. When we say man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Does that mean, well, we need to work really hard to make sure God gets more glory because he needs... No, that's not what it means. Glorifying God is a matter of putting his glory on display. It's about his glory being demonstrated and being beheld more widely by his creatures so that we can love it and relish it. So God doesn't owe us anything when he puts his glory on display in our lives. It's the other way around. We owe him everything. And people who acknowledge that will turn to him in faith, will fall on his mercy, will receive his free forgiveness in Christ. And then what does God do? God displays his glory and his love by giving those people life and blessing that they didn't deserve because he loves them. On the other hand, people who don't want to acknowledge God, who decide instead to to stay arrogant, to stay stubborn, who won't turn away from sin, who won't receive his mercy, those people God judges. And he displays his glory in giving them the just penalty that that rebellion richly deserves, justly. He doesn't get glory from them. No, he displays his glory in them, in that outcome. Okay, so you see Paul's logic here. Step one. Well, maybe there's no advantage to being an Israelite. Well, sure there is, Paul says. If you're an Israelite, you get this unparalleled access to the word of God. Okay, okay, Paul, then maybe God made a mistake because if it's such an advantage to be an Israelite, then then all the Israelites should have just been saved. No, no, God never promised that. God was faithful every step of the way, but he always knew that his people would not be. And God is unimpeachably just, therefore, when he judges unfaithful Israelites. Okay, well, well, Paul then if it's so great for unfaithful people to get judged, then are you saying their sin is good because God gets to judge it? No. That's ridiculous. Literally, no one is saying that, Paul says in response. Paul is working his way up here. He's getting close to the, the high point of this section. You can see what he's been doing all along. What he's been doing all along is cutting away One by one by one. All kinds of possible excuses that people might use to weasel their way out of admitting their guilt under the law of God. That's what Paul's doing here. He has cut away the plea of ignorance in chapter 2. Oh, I didn't know. I didn't have the law. I was just a Gentile. No, he says you, you do have a certain natural knowledge of your creator, God, and his law. You live by it all the time, and so you have no excuse when you break it. On the other hand, this person says, Oh, I, I have the law. I'm, I'm a Jew. Um, I'm an Israelite, so I'm good. Nothing to see here, because obviously I must be good to go because I have the law of Moses. And Paul says, Yes, I know you have the law, but you haven't kept it. And then in this chapter, 
Well, maybe it wasn't so good to be in the covenant in the first place then. Maybe it's all really God's fault. And Paul says, nothing could be further from the truth. There's no way any of this is God's fault. See, Paul is systematically, strategically laying all the blame for human sin right where it belongs, which is on us. Every single one of us. Without exception. There's an irony then in verse 9, as Paul turns a corner here to the next point. In verse 1, he asked, what advantage has the Jew? And the answer was, much in every way. Well, in verse 9, he says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? In this case, in a different sense, the answer is, no, not at all. Well, which is it? Much in every way or no, not at all? Well, both are true, but in different senses. Here, the uh, Jews are not any better off in the end if they don't keep the law. We had this tremendous advantage of belonging to God's covenant family, Paul's saying, but we squandered it. We squandered it by rejecting uh, God's law, by rejecting um, his word, rejecting the covenant. And so in the end, in the end, therefore, we are no better off than our Gentile counterparts. Paul says, I've already argued, I'm repeating it now, all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. That's the point he's been focused on this whole time. None of us has an excuse. All of us are guilty. And now that he has proven that in so many different ways that we've just worked through repeatedly, now that he's proven it, he goes on to seal this point by appealing to the Old Testament scriptures and showing time after time after time in many, many, many different places in the Old Testament, this is exactly what the scriptures have always taught. He quotes from Psalm 14, then Psalm 5, then Psalm 140, and then Psalm 10, and then from Proverbs, and then from Isaiah, and then he's back to Psalms in Psalm 36. One quotation after another, stringing these all together, hammering away at the Bible's clear and repeated and relentless testimony to what we call the total depravity of human nature. Every part of every one of us, our thoughts, our wills, our feelings, everything is touched by this disease of human sin. There's no doubt about it. We are Mr. Hyde's and Dr. Jekyll's. We are not Frankenstein's. We're not born good and then corrupted by our surroundings like Frankenstein's monster. No, we all have this Mr. Hyde lurking in our souls that these Old Testament passages, one after the other, describe. And how do we know that? Well, it's the law of God that shows us that. Whether we've read it in written form or whether we just have that sense of conscience, either way, we know there is a problem. We're accountable to God but we haven't met his standard of righteousness. And there's simply no way for us to make up for that on our own. We can't obey enough from now on to make up for that broken law. Verse 20, then, is so important for understanding the, the hope that Paul is going to give in the second half of the chapter. We'll pick up on next time. It's often said that to understand 
the good news of the gospel, you must first understand the bad news of human sin. And this is it. Today is the bad news. That by works of the law, no human being will ever be justified in God's sight. Why? Because through the law comes knowledge of sin. That's all the law has the power to do. It doesn't offer you a way to salvation. It offers you an accurate look at your own heart. When you look at the law of God, what do you see? You don't see there a pathway for getting to God through obedience. It's just over before it starts. That ship has sailed because you've already broken this law many times over. And so when you look at the law, what should you see? What you should see is a mirror showing you your own reflection, showing you the way things really are, showing you the truth about the depths of your need before a holy God. And it is only when God shows you that awful truth in all of its crystal clarity. It's only when you come to terms with the fact that you are a sinner guilty before God. Only then can the gospel of God's free grace really make sense to you. Because, see, although you and I are guilty, guilty of breaking this law of God, God hasn't treated us as he the way that guilt deserves. He's provided another way. A way for guilty sinners to know him not as a condemning judge, but instead as a loving father. He has done that by providing someone else to keep that law for us. To do for us what we could not ever do for ourselves. To obey the law that we could not obey. Not just to take our punishment. Not just to suffer in our place. That's an aspect of the gospel. A very important one. That's what Jesus did on the cross. But what was he doing the other 33 years of his life? What was he doing all that time? Brothers and sisters, he was obeying the law of God. He was keeping God's holy standard of righteousness every moment of every day without ever letting up, even when it was really hard, even when it was really unpleasant, even when he was strongly tempted to take an easier path. He continued on the path of righteousness until it was finished. Until that robe of righteousness that he alone of all people ever to live actually earned fully and completely by his life of obedience. And it is that robe of righteousness, that righteousness of his that he gives to you. He says, here, take it. It's mine, but now it's yours. He gives that free gift to guilty sinners who look to him in faith and who reach out their hands and receive it. Thank you, Jesus. A lot more on that next week. Just in closing, I want to remark for us that today is uh, what we might think of as Reformation Sunday. We're getting near the anniversary, a few days of that symbolic beginning 
of the Protestant Reformation in 1517 when Martin Luther nailed those 95 theses, that church door in Wittenberg. Luther and many who came after him, they were very concerned about these very things that I've just been proclaiming to you from the Word of God. Luther himself knew in a very personal way the despair of laboring under the law's condemnation, the condemnation of a law he knew he could not keep because he, maybe more than most, had tried his heart out. And he knew he could never measure up. But it was when he discovered the wonder of the gospel of God's free salvation for sinners by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, That is when his life was set on fire for that gospel. A gospel which has been handed down to us here at Resurrection today in 2023, all these years later. A gospel that is worth believing. A gospel that is worth staking our eternal lives upon. A gospel that is worth preserving and defending in the church. And a gospel that is worth sharing far and wide. Anybody who will give us a listen. Because it's the gospel that the world needs and that the people you love and know need to hear from you. But first, do you know that you need this gospel? Do you know this conviction that through the law comes the knowledge of your sin? If you don't start there, I'll never get to the grace. Because this conviction is part of God's grace that leads you to Christ. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, in our pride, we want to think that we're okay on our own. We want to think that we're basically good people. Even though maybe we've made some mistakes, but that at heart... We're okay and that deserve, we deserve for you to just accept us the way we are. Lord, we know that's not true, though. Your law shows us that we are guilty and that we need a Savior. We need a salvation that can't come from us. It's got to come from outside. We need someone to obey this law that we could not keep. And we thank you that that is exactly what you provided for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we take refuge in him. We give you thanks for this gospel of free grace. And we ask that you would empower us by the Holy Spirit to believe it, to preserve it and defend it, and to proclaim it far and wide. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.